0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday, 10 to 2, on 980 CKNW and through the Radio
1: Player app. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's talk about that high-speed train from Vancouver to Seattle and then on to Portland. Got Jonathan Cote standing by. We're going to talk about that, whether this should be the highest priority uh, for our region some metro lots of metro vancouver uh, mayors now speaking out about local transit projects uh thinking that maybe this high speed bullet train to seattle nice idea right get down to seattle in an hour get down to portland in 2 hours pretty cool but extremely expensive should there be higher priority projects here locally so that's our hot question of the day some mayors saying local projects I should take uh, priority here. What do you think should be given the highest priority? Would you say this high-speed train to Seattle? Or would you say local transit projects? Or maybe you think they're both equally important? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question today. So make sure you vote on that. We'll keep tally of the results during the show. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line about it, 604 331 buzz 604-331-2899. Let's check in with Jonathan Cote now. He's the mayor of New Westminster. He's the chair of the Metro Mayor's Council. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for coming on. T- tell me your uh, your thoughts on this, uh, this train to Seattle. Do you think that should be a top priority?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm not sure it should be a, a top priority. I think it's yeah. uh, certainly an interesting idea. You know, I think there's lots of places around the world where major cities are, are connected by, by high-speed rail, and, you know, I think there's there's benefits with that. But I think locally of, of the challenges we have with, with transportation in the Metro Vancouver region, and we've got some pretty immediate uh, priority projects, whether it's transit infrastructure or road infrastructure that, uh, you know, I think from, from my perspective, uh, really can't, we can't afford to to be kind of keep you know take uh, take our eye off, uh, off off the game here
1: right right what do you what kind of transit priorities do you think should be near the top of the list here locally
2: yeah, well, you know the mayors uh, have developed a ten-year plan, which we are in the process of, of implementing. But there's there's still large components of, of that plan that uh, that aren't aren't fully funded yet. Uh, an example will be is we're working on developing SkyTrain expansion into uh, in, into the city of Surrey. Our long-term vision is to expand that uh, SkyTrain all the way to to, to Langley. And I guess yeah. what we don't want to have is uh, you know the the big shiny object of of this high-speed rail to to Seattle and Portland distract us from getting the the immediate funding that we know uh the, with the projects that will affect uh, commuters and, and residents of metro vancouver on a daily basis
1: yeah a shiny object is is kind of an interesting way to put it kind of reminds me of that episode of the simpsons where they built the monorail remember that every everyone gets so excited oh man this sounds so exciting but then you got to step back and think wait a minute you know what is the highest priority here uh, exactly. You know,
2: 40, $40 billion is the number that I've kind of seen thrown yeah. around for, for this. And that is a, a lot of money that could uh, certainly transform transportation right here in, in the Metro Vancouver region. And I think we ask, have to ask ourselves, Do should we be prioritizing investments that are going to affect residents on a daily basis or trips that they might make uh once twice a year and, and some folks more more often there and i think that all has to be part of part of the discussion about which which of these things uh project needs uh, needs greater priority
1: yeah i mean it could be 40 billion uh u.s so i mean you, you know let's talk about you you translate that into canadian dollars i mean you're talking over 50 billion canadian now you know I, I talked to the minister responsible on this uh, on the show yesterday about this and he said well obviously we wouldn't be on the hook for all of that i mean the americans most of this this high speed rail line to portland would go through the united states so they would pay the biggest share of it but let's say we even had to pick up uh, 25% of the cost you know you're still looking at 15 billion canadian maybe
2: yeah, well, lot. just to put that in, into perspective, uh, you know, to complete the SkyTrain to, to Langley City, uh, you know, we're probably looking for for a call for an extra one point five five billion. So when yeah. you compare that to a forty billion number, you know, there, there's a huge, huge scale issue here.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm speaking to Jonathan Cote, the mayor of New Westminster, He's the chair of the Metro Mayors Council. Have you guys been like consulted on this high speed rail idea to Seattle? Are you guys in the loop on this? So they and are, they, are the, all these governments running this by you guys and saying, what do you think of this?
2: There hasn't been significant engagement, but uh, Uh we we are well aware that, uh, you know, the provincial government and and the states of Washington and Oregon have been studying that. So we're not uh, we're not in the dark on on, on that. And, you know, I think there is interest in, in the region saying longer term, how does Metro Vancouver connect to. Uh, the other major cities in the Pacific Northwest. How do we connect yeah. to the Fraser Valley, Chilliwack, Abbotsford? How do we connect in the to Sky Corridor? So, you know, these are important discussions that I think do have to happen. I guess our just big concern is, you know, this big shiny object, uh, which is very expensive, and could could actually end up distracting us from some more immediate concerns that uh, uh, that need funding right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's always an opportunity cost to doing stuff, right? I mean, you make a decision to spend money on one thing. That means you don't have that money to spend it somewhere else that may be a higher priority. I think Fraser Valley is an interesting example that you cite there. I mean, imagine all the people in Langley, Abbotsford, or wherever, thinking like, hey, how about getting us some better transit services out here?
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, right now, the the TransLink is going through our our long-range plan, Transport twenty fifty, and this is the time to bring out those big ideas. But, uh, you know, connecting to Seattle, how do we compare that to connecting to the fraser valley which is growing very rapidly and uh you know what you've got to have those discussions because the reality is we don't have an unlimited uh set of set of resources for for investment in transportation so we do need to be strategic about these things
1: right what about the massey tunnel i mean that's another one that i hear all the time from people who are just wasting their lives sitting in that traffic bottleneck there and this project has now been delayed to replace that congested massey tunnel maybe that should be higher up on the list too
2: yeah, so you know, I think there's there's a lot of projects that are kind of in, in the in the hopper right now, and you know, if we're we're just having some initial studies and and keeping this long range, uh, you know, I don't think there's there's harm in it, but when a project like this yeah. uh, might start to leapfrog some other more immediate projects in the region, I think that's where where the alarm bells get raised. What
1: what about the potential economic benefit of this high speed rail? I mean, we had this 400 page feasibility study come out this week that. I mean, it sounds amazing. I mean, you spend all this money. Yeah, it's expensive, but look at the economic spinoff. I mean, billions of dollars injected into the economy, thousands of jobs. I mean, they made it sound extraordinary, the benefits of this thing. Uh, tourism benefits, although someone said to me, do we really need a lot more tourism here? We haven't got enough hotel rooms as it is.
3: Yeah. So, you know,
2: I, I think there definitely could be some really interesting opportunities about connecting, uh, you know, the three major cities on, on the Pacific Northwest and, you know, yeah. e- even how those economies would become a lot closer, closer tied tied together. So, you know, I don't want to dismiss that there isn't some really interesting uh, opportunities about connecting these three major cities in, in, in that way. But having said that, there are huge economic benefits to, uh, to be able to deal with congestion in, in Metro Vancouver uh, as well, too. So, right. uh, you know, I think all of these projects have to go through proper business cases and have to do that kind of kind of study. But, uh, uh, you know, I guess our, our perspective, though, is there's some very local things that have some really good business cases that are just uh, waiting on, on the shelf and, and waiting to be funded.
1: What about for your constituents there in New West? What do you think would be like if you had your way, what would be job one right now? Well, you know, I think
2: of, of, of residents in, uh, in, in, in my community, uh, yeah, you know, I think a lot would be kind of interested with this idea of, of high-speed rail, but when it really comes down to it, I think if you were to talk to the average resident in, in, in Metro Vancouver, uh, they're going to be mainly focused on their daily commute, the daily transportations that they do many times throughout the week, and how can you make, make that easier?
1: And uh, right. to me, I, I would say that's a higher priority for residents in the region. Okay, thanks for coming on. Okay, thanks for having me. I I appreciate it a lot. That is Jonathan Cote. He is the mayor of New Westminster. He's the chair of the Metro Mayor's Council.
4: This is the only sentence that can be given to somebody who has spent a lifetime poisoning the streets of our community. The, The impact of today's sentence can't be overstated. The world has now been rid of the brutality of the Sinaloa cartel leader.
1: All right, that's the sound today from outside that courtroom in New York City. That was Ariana Fajardo, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida uh, this morning. And El Chapo, Joaquin Guzman, the Mexican drug lord, sentenced today to life in prison by a federal judge in Brooklyn, New York. He spent 25 years running a violent cartel trafficking billions of dollars in drugs he was eventually captured and extradited to the united states after a series of prison escapes he, he dug out of prison twice he escaped prison two times he's, is he going to escape again let's check in with douglas century now he's the co-author of the terrific book hunting el chapo i'm very pleased to welcome him back hi douglas
5: hi mike thanks for having me back on
1: thanks again for coming on you've uh had, you've had you followed this guy's escapades for a long time. You've written a great book about El Chapo. What are your thoughts today as he's sentenced to life in prison?
5: Well, I, you know, I wouldn't say that was a foregone conclusion, but the conviction and the, if you followed the trial, the, the weight of evidence, the high level of the cooperating witnesses. And some of these guys were, were top narcos themselves. And they really put, uh, but they put Chapo in, in scenes of incredible violence and torture uh you know i i think everybody thought he was going to get buried under the prison and and he is he has been buried under the prison life plus 30 years 12.6 billion dollars in, in asset forfeitures and that's it's i think is what was expected he he broke down in tears a little bit in, in court feeling sorry for himself but i didn't expect him to speak in court that was the only surprise to me
1: what did he say in court well he basically said
5: that the united states system was more corrupt than than the, the countries they criticized for being corrupt, and it was a bit of a pity party about how, how inhumane the conditions are where he's being held in Manhattan. It's called Little Gitmo, you know, he has no sunlight, and he was complaining about how he has to stuff toilet paper in his ears. When I read his, you know, it, it seemed kind of like crocodile tears. The guy's a sociopath, and he's responsible for the death of many, many people, and he's incredibly calculating and cruel. And you know, I think he's 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 facing a very brutal end of the end of his life. Um, so I think you know he he point, pointed the finger at at how unjust his trial was. Okay, um, this, this is
1: a, this is a guy who's escaped twice from prison, as you've documented in your book, Douglas. Where is he going to serve his life sentence now? And can is it possible that he could escape again?
5: Well, he's going to this place. It's called the Alcatraz of the Rockies. Almost certainly. It is the most maximum security federal penitentiary in in the United States, Florence, Colorado. I think it's only four hundred some inmates. They they in a good situation only get out one hour a day, twenty two hours to twenty three hours a day in solitary. Wow. He's not getting out of there. He's not, and it's going to be really. I think he's so miserable in court because he realizes his time in the Mexican prison system, even before he escaped, was conjugal visits and and. You know, wine and cheese parties, whatever he wanted. Um, he's going to be doing time. It's the same place John Gotti was and a lot of the uh, convicted terrorists. It's miserable. And you no, know, he will not escape. I know people think it's the movies. He escaped from Mexican prisons because of enormous bribes that were paid to prison officials, to politicians, to look the under- other way so that tunnels could be constructed, as you said. That's not going to happen in the United States of America. It's just there's not enough money. He doesn't have the billions of dollars it would would require to corrupt the system. So he's going to be doing his time in Colorado, and it will be a miserable last 30 or 40 years to his life, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a guy, I guess, a legend kind of built up around him about his ability to escape from these jail cells in Mexico, and he had another nickname I remember there, El Rapido. He could just disappear in a flash, but... You know, like you said, I mean, it's not because this guy was any genius at being able to tunnel out of these prisons. I mean, the the guards, the prison guards, were looking the other way, weren't they? Sure. They well, let him. Was, they let, was, let him escape. Uh, they let him escape, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. A lot of in the
5: second in the second case, yes, in, in uh, Altopiano prison, which was his most recent escape. Um, the. He was a genius logistically in, in the running. That's a different story, but in the running of his business, I think he really was a incredibly astute, clever businessman. I think I've talked to you before about how he exploited Canada, he exploited Vancouver because the price of cocaine was was more on a retail level than in Los Angeles. He was a very smart guy, and or he is, and he was very, and he was smart in that he employed actual architects and engineers to build these tunnels. But it could only have been done with the complicity. And, I, you know, it came out at court that there were an allegation of hundreds of millions of bribes paid to the president of Mexico, the various presidents wow. of Mexico. And that's not far fetched. I don't I mean, it wasn't proven and it wasn't admitted as evidence. But certainly, if you throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at a guy in Mexico working as a, as a, as a prison warden, it, given the standard of living and the amount of money that they make in pesos, he could he had enough money to corrupt anybody there. And that's my argument when people say, well, he could do it in the States. I said, no, a prison guard in no. the U.S. would not throw away his 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 pension and his life. The, it, the, the money would have to be billions. It's just it's a different system. Everybody is corruptible, you know, but in Mexico, he had the system gamed to such a degree that he well, pay people to look the other way.
1: Yeah, especially out of that supermax prison in Colorado. I mean, he ain't getting out of there. I, I agree with you there. How did they get him, Douglas? I mean, this is one of the focuses of your book, Hunting El Chapo. I, one of the critical points here is when he was extradited to the United States, right? How did they manage to pull that off, get him in in front of a well, judge would, in the United States?
5: Incredible teamwork of uh, the guy I worked with, the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, working with Homeland Security, working on earlier cases, by the way, with the RCMP and local cops in Canada. It was a massive cooperative effort to build up uh, understanding of his communication structure. He used BlackBerry. By the way, he used BlackBerry because it was Canadian and he thought, (laughs) clever, he thought it would be harder for the U.S. to get warrants, court-authorized intercepts on a Canadian company, but they did get it. Uh-huh. And they broke through his blackberry messaging, and it was really uh, incredibly dogged if you read the book, very dogged detective work mixed with high tech stuff you know using using satellites and all sorts of things to track his movements and essentially he did escape if you recall he escaped through a yeah. bathtub on hydraulics and they tracked him down to mazatlan and that was his first that was his first capture but they they really used all the tools of law enforcement, and I think uh, the lesson in our book at least is that usually law enforcement is very territorial. The FBI doesn't work with DEA or the same in Canada. I'm sure local cops don't trust the RCMP with their information sometimes, but when, when all the law enforcement agencies put aside their egos and aren't so territorial and protective, and they actually share information, all these different um, agents came together right. and they ensnared him. No man, okay. is, really. I mean, the lesson of this is not that the is going to disappear. It's still being run by his sons and his, there's still an enormous appetite for cocaine in canada and the united states so the drugs are still coming in i think what the, about the what about his,
1: this- hey douglas what about his kids you like you mentioned his sons who are known as el chapitos the little the little yeah. chapos are they do they sort of take over the sinaloa cartel now and and run it after the, yeah, now that their father's just- locked up
5: the top guy is a guy named El Mayo Zambada, who has has been Chapo's partner for years. But yeah, as far as his his end of it, it, it is his sons and a brother, um, and they're continuing. You know, I mean, as long as there are, is the sort of pipeline, um, there is a guy called El Mencho in Guadalajara who is the much more feared cartel boss, and he he went into a war. That's why you're seeing all these, you know, murders in tourist places like Cancun. There is a struggle for power. But yes, as far as uh, his end of the drug trafficking operation, yeah, it just goes to his sons, and and other people are going to step into the breach. There, there is no less an appetite on the consumer end for cocaine right. and recreational drugs in okay. uh, as much as legal legalizing pot helped in one degree uh, to cut into his market, but he just he just flooded. It. Now he's in methamphetamine and other things. So yeah, his sons have have sort of stepped into the breach and are are running his end of the operation. So the Sinaloa cartel is still the most powerful even with the former boss in
1: prison. Douglas, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. That's Douglas Century. He is a journalist. He's the co-author of the terrific book, Hunting El Chapo. Of course, you got Mayor Doug McCallum and his counsel saying that they intend to keep their promise to replace the RCMP, uh, bring in a municipal police force. I think there's some people maybe getting cold feet on this, and certainly some public opposition to the idea as well. Let's talk to the uh, creator of the Keep the RCMP in Surrey campaign now, Ivan Scott on the line. Hi, Ivan.
4: Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning.
1: Thanks a lot for coming on. What's the latest on your your petition count?
4: Well, the petition count at this stage, Mike, has uh, exceeded the 11,000 mark, and we're now, uh, yesterday we went over... Uh, what was a milestone for me, 1,104 plus. And that was an important number for me. Why is that important for you? Well, it's an important number because that's what Mr. Mayor Mayor McCallum touted as uh, the number of surveys, the positive surveys that he got for his his, uh, campaign himself. So uh, we've exceeded that now, and uh, I'm very pleased about that.
1: Why do you think the Surrey should keep the Mounties?
4: Well, Mike, the Mounties are, are the, probably the best, one of the best police forces in the world. They've been around in Surrey for the last, since 1951, I believe. They've got a contract there to go from 2012 to 2032. And I don't see any reason for throwing them out like he did. He, yeah. uh, he, just, he just disrespected them, kicked them out uh, without actually talking to anybody.
1: Okay, well, if you talk to the mayor, which I've, I've done many times, he would say that a, a local police force, you'd have more local control, they'd be more responsive to local community concerns, and you could have a, a local police chief who'd be directly accountable to the mayor and to a local uh, police board, not like the RCMP, so you'd have better policing in Surrey. What do you say to that?
4: Well, I say that's a, that's a crock because uh, what he's looking for is he's looking for more control from himself, from, from his own point of view, uh, this, I think, is an egocentric uh, uh, thing that he's wanting there. He's had a, had a hate for some reason for the RCMP for years and years and years. And uh, what he can do is he has, abs- he has control of the RCMP to uh, any extent that anybody wants a police force. They have a contract yeah. with, the, with the RCMP. They talk to them. They, if they're not doing the right job, then, uh, you know, you, you pull in the contract. And at this, this stage, uh, there's nothing to say that they've been doing a bad
1: job. What do you think about the way that McCallum has handled this whole transition with the the public consultation, or some people would say lack thereof, or maybe it's insufficient? But what are your thoughts on that?
4: Well, it's been absolutely nothing. Uh, he's he's taken it on his own on his own bat, and he's decided to run with it on him by himself. He hasn't asked anybody. He didn't even ask any of his councillors to uh, make any input there. They got the report forty five minutes before he submitted it to. Uh, to the provincial government, um, people were expecting when this came about it's that in actual fact, okay, uh, w- let's have a look at, at what's going on down here and uh, let's, let's see, do the business plan, come up with a, with a scenario and we'll, we'll look at it like uh, Richmond looked at it and Richmond looked at it in great depth and then threw the, the, uh, the idea out.
1: What about the uh, the apparently overwhelming public support for a local police force there in Surrey? Didn't the, didn't the mayor put out a survey saying it was like ninety over ninety percent supported him on this? Uh,
4: no, no. This survey was a completely biased uh, survey. It was a survey that uh, was not restricted. You could have done the survey one hundred times from the same computer. There was no restriction on that. And I'm, uh, you know, f- we were at every single one of those uh, consultation. Uh, things that he had out there. There were 23 of them, and we were there every single time. And, Mike, I can tell you that they were within 30 feet of us or 30 meters of us, and we could see exactly what was happening on that side, and they could see exactly what was happening on our side. And in the three hours, in most of those, in the three hours that they were there, I was surprised to see even five or six people fill in those surveys. In that particular mm. time, we had over 200 um, petitioners come in to be anti that so yeah it, it was it was a, a lopsided thing and people saw right through that that uh, silly stupid survey
1: okay speaking to ivan scott from the keep the rcmp in surrey campaign ivan there's already been a transition plan submitted to the provincial government it's now being reviewed by the solicitor general mike farnworth who's going to make a decision at this at some point i think he's I don't know, the fact that these uh, Farnworth appears to be going slow here in approving this, does that give you any hope or indication that maybe the provincial government will say, we're not going to go along with this, the province has got to approve it, right? I'm hoping that that is the case, uh, Mike, but I have faith
4: yeah. in uh, Mr. Farnworth, and I think he's going to do a decent job on this sort of thing, because there wasn't a decent job done before. And I think he's going to come back. And he, it, the, the best case scenario would say, well, this is a this is a not a good idea. And he's looking at it from a safety aspect point of view. Right. And what Mr. McCallum is trying to do is he's going to bring in less police for a lot more money. And, right. uh, you know, it's going to make everything a lot less safe. And if you want to get the, the new police force to the same sort of level as your professional RCMP is going to be, it's going to take years. And what's going to happen to our safety in that time? I, I want. Be-
1: I wonder, though, if it's possible to stop it if the train's gone too far down the tracks maybe at this point. I mean, you got McCallum, who clearly campaigned on a promise to bring in a local police force and get rid of the Surrey RCMP. His slate, his his political party, won almost all the seats on council. He's still got a majority there. He's lost a couple of councillors, but he's still got a majority. Is it possible to stop him?
4: I believe it is possible to stop him. I think uh, clear-thinking people will realize what's, what's happened over here. And it's been a sort of a dictatorial type of thing. And, and it's my way or the highway. And we don't, he's had no transparency. He has had no discussion. He's never in, uh, engaged me on any particular aspect and, and nobody else.
1: He doesn't want okay. to
4: hear from anybody. And uh, of course, the train can be stopped. It has brakes and, and we're going to be standing on the tracks.
1: Ivan, thanks for coming on.
4: You're very welcome. Thanks for it.
1: All right, that's Ivan Scott from the Keep the RCMP in Surrey campaign. They got 11,000 signatures on their petition now. They're trying to get 50,000 signatures by this fall. Let's talk about a brand new podcast out now from Chorus Entertainment's Curious Cast Network. It's the history of the 90s, bringing listeners back to the great decade of the 1990s. Lots of nostalgia. The host is Kathy Kenzora. She joins me now. Hi, Kathy. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. So tell me all about this podcast. How did you guys come up with this idea?
6: Well, um, I was working on a podcast previous to this that looked at just the, uh, 1995, so one year in particular, and uh, we just decided to expand it out and look at all of the 90s because it's such a monumental decade, and now we've had the uh, you know, the t- some time and some hindsight and able to really look back at some of the major events from that decade and see how they're impacting us today, whether it's, you know, in the entertainment world, in the, you know, in news, in sports, pop culture, everything. We're we're starting to feel it now. And I think a lot of people who came of age during the 90s are, you know, they've grown up and, and they want to take some time and, like you said, be some nostalgic and look back at that time period.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great idea because I think it's going to appeal to a lot of demographics. I mean, not just people who were kind of growing up as teenagers or whatever in the 90s or maybe a little older, but even older generations who, who uh, experienced, of course, the 1990s. So what do you think uh, makes the 90s such a fascinating decade?
6: Well, things were different at the beginning of the decade, for sure. And then by the end of the decade, there was so much change. And I think a lot of it has to do with technology. We really saw the Internet take off at the beginning. And by the end, we were all, you know, everyone was getting online. So the way we did everything sort of changed over that 10-year period. So it's, you know, some of it survived, some of it died off, like some of the trends and fads and things. But I think that was, it was such a turning point for that reason and, you know, a lot of people remember the gadgets they had in the 90s that no longer exist, like pagers, as an example. Like, we were all walking around with pagers, and now here we are. It doesn't feel like that long later, and everyone's hooked up with their smartphones.
1: Yeah, no, I know, I know the first episode of the podcast takes a look at sort of tabloid media stories. Can you, can yeah. you uh, just expand a little bit further on that and what you're analyzing there? For sure. Yeah, for sure. So
6: the 90s was a crazy time. If you remember, there were... Shows like Inside Edition, Hard Copy, Your Current Affair. And there were these half-hour shows ran every single day, probably in the supper hour, that really, um, you know, kind of were these sleazy entertainment news-type shows that looked at scandals and crimes and things like that. And one of the, you know, a perfect example, a story, was the Amy Fisher story or the Long Island Lolita. And this was a 17-year-old uh, girl in uh, Long Island who shot her uh lovers uh wife in the face um she survived but it just uh the her lover was 37 years old 36 years old Joey Buttafuco, you probably remember the name and it <laughs> yes, just was yes. this it became like this punchline right but it yeah. was everywhere and it wasn't just tabloid news picking it up but then it you know a kind of it cycled down into the uh, mainstream media. And that's for for two years, probably, at, at, at least, we heard about, you know, Amy Fisher and Joey Badafuko. And this story wasn't really that significant, but All it right. was everywhere. So it's really taking a look at that story in particular and how tabloid TV sort of took over our sensibilities in the 90s and and, you know, what it did to society
1: as a whole. Right. Who could forget Joey Buttafuoco? I mean, everybody oh, remem- I know, I know. everybody <laughs> remembers that. And it's really amazing when you think about it, when these stories were so huge, and like you said, sort of saturation coverage and kind of tabloid media and yeah. tabloid TV. And that was sort of before the the era of social media. Can you imagine? Right. The, oh, can you imagine the feeding frenzy no. if we, Twitter existed? Like another one that jumps to mind are some of those other uh, big stories in, in the 1990s, as well, like um, you know, some of some of the other ones. What were some like of the other Lorena Bobbitt?
6: Yeah, yeah, Lorena Bobbitt was a big one. Tanya Harding, even uh, Monica Lewinsky. Oh, that's the one I was um, thinking you
1: know, of, like the Clinton yeah, Monica yeah. Lewinsky scandal. My goodness! Right.
6: So yeah, outside of it being obviously huge political news, it became a tabloid story that you know every single day you were getting tiny little updates that the tabloid news pulled out of garbage cans, like literally. So it was just, and people loved it, and it just. It spawned a generation of, of shows like um, other talk shows, TV uh, trash TV with you know uh, Geraldo Rivera and Jenny Jones and all of those types of shows. It was just you know it felt like we um, had different tastes in the '90s. That luckily a lot of it didn't survive.
1: Yeah, there's I think there's a lot of '90s nostalgia out there right now, and there's a big appetite for hmm. this. So I think it's a very timely podcast. And if you look around, like you know the the live action remake that we're seeing yep. of the lion king i guess it's not live action it's this sort of new sort of very highly realistic uh animation for this new yeah, lion, yeah, yeah, lion yeah. king movie and i know yeah. you're doing something on that right
6: yeah so we're, we're looking back at the making of the original lion king which was from 1994 we thought it was perfect right. timing with the new one coming out because it was such a huge cultural phenomenon and it was like it's one of disney's most beloved movies but yeah. the real, you know, the, the interesting story is that Disney really wasn't behind it 100% in the beginning. They were really pushing for another movie, Pocahontas. They just thought Lion King would be um, a filler until Pocahontas was done. And so, you know, they didn't really put all the resources and their top animators into Lion King. It was just like, eh, we'll see how it goes. We're not so sure. It's kind of a weird story, a talking lion. But, you know, and then it just exploded into this huge phenomenon that we're seeing is still, you
1: know, lives on so many years later. Right. What other topics do you plan to cover on the podcast?
6: So we're we're looking at a lot of fun stuff like Lion King, but we're also looking at serious stuff. We have an episode coming out on the shooting at Columbine High School in 1999. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a tough one. It really is. But it's really important because it talks about, you know, what has happened since 1999 at the beginning of what's known now as sort of the school shooter era and how that one shooting in particular Created this playbook for uh, dozens of other people and um, has really really impacted society. So that's a really important one. But of course, we want to look at the fun stuff like um, 90210. It's also getting a reboot and and uh, the you know TV show Friends. All the kids are watching it today. But yes, it is from yeah. the '90s. So we'll talk about that and and you know lots of um, news stories as well like. Um, Nelson Mandela being freed and the end of communism. So it just we can really just go the whole, you know, the whole gamut from sports to news and back again.
1: Yeah, like the Berlin Wall coming down. I mean, my goodness, it was one of the one of the most amazing historical events we've had in our lifetime, I think. And then for sports, uh, yeah, go ahead.
6: Yeah, we. um, I was just going to say back with the Berlin Wall. If you think about it, it came down in '89. So and then people often refer to the '90s as between the Berlin Wall and 9/11. So the right. the decade in between those two events is is the '90s, and it, it that really sums it up perfectly. I think that you know it just it went from one extreme to the other. But as for sports, yeah, um, one I'm really interested in is Mike Tyson.
0: Oh, the
6: ride of Mike Tyson through the '90s. That's you know that that would be fun. But uh, yeah, we've got um, steroids in in baseball is a big one as well. Lots of, there was a big NHL strike and also um, Michael Jordan. We've got lots of great stuff.
1: Okay, where can people find uh, the podcast if they want to download it onto their favorite device, Kathy?
6: Yeah, so it is on Apple Podcasts. It's on Spotify. It's probably everywhere people are using right now for to listen to podcasts, but you can also go to CuriousCast.ca.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
6: And you will find it there.
1: Kathy, good luck with it. Thanks for coming on. Sounds great. No problem. That's great. Thanks a lot. All right, that's Kathy Kenzora, the host of History of the 90s podcast on Curious Cast. Let's talk about the gas price inquiry going on in downtown Vancouver at this hour. This is the inquiry that was called by Premier John Horgan, who said those big oil companies were gouging Metro Vancouver drivers with the highest gas prices in North America. Now, remember what Horgan said. This has got nothing, repeat, nothing to do with gas taxes in metro vancouver which are also the highest in north america this is about those big greedy oil companies just hosing us at the gas pump when you listen to premier john Horgan, he says basically every time you go to fill up your tank of gas these big oil companies are just holding you up by the ankles and shaking every dime out of your pocket you know they're just hosing us here at the gas the gas pump so he called a public inquiry into sky high gas prices that inquiry is underway right now let's check in with global news reporter and anchor need garcha now she's covering this today hi Nitu. hi mike thanks a lot for coming on what's going on down there
7: No problem. Uh, So we're on the 12th floor of a building in downtown Vancouver, uh, where the blinds are closed and us TV reporters are not allowed to shoot any video. Radio reporters are not allowed to gather any audio um, for broadcast purposes, uh, which for uh, inquiry that's all about transparency certainly didn't sit well with many of the journalists in the room. So I wanted to start off by saying that. And then in terms of what we heard so far this morning, I mean, the hearing is underway as we speak. And I stepped out to do this live hit with you. But each oil company that is there this morning with its legal counsel representing it has about 40 minutes to ask questions to Dietkin Group, which is a group of Vancouver-based consultants that have been hired by the BC Utilities Commission, and it has made two reports into various factors that affect gas prices in Metro Vancouver versus other parts of Western Canada and Seattle, and it was pretty dry, (laughs) I have to be honest. It was a lot of mundane questions about some detailed graphs within the report, um, How certain conclusions were drawn, how certain numbers were reached, that sort of thing. Uh, But what I'm hearing from some of these economists and experts that were commissioned to do this report is that based on their analysis, they don't believe there's any sort of cartel collusion happening here. They believe this is a truly competitive market. Uh, Apparently they've found no evidence that the quantity or volume of product that's being allowed into the market is being restricted in order to increase uh, prices, that sort of thing. So it's pretty interesting to hear some of the questions that these oil companies have for the researchers who've been contracted out um, to do these reports. There is a total of three of them that were released to the public over the last couple weeks, and uh, it'll be interesting to see when the tables turn, and these oil companies are the ones who face the questions, and that is coming up later this afternoon.
1: Yeah, because, of course, this inquiry all came after Horgan said that we are getting gouged by these oil companies Mm -hmm. when we go to the gas pump, so I think it will be very interesting indeed when some of these oil company officials are are on, this, on the witness stand there a- answering questions. Is that scheduled to happen this afternoon?
7: Yes, within minutes, right. actually, Mike. Okay. Um, so the order is uh, the National Energy Board, Parkland, and then Shell, Imperial, and Suncore. all will face questions or are scheduled to face questions from the BCUC panel this afternoon. And interesting and important to note, Mike, that this inquiry has actually essentially been banned from including the effects that government policy so taxes have on prices in BC and this inquiry was called by BC's Premier John Horgan who's come under fire for that reason. BC Liberals were pretty quick to issue a news release this morning calling this review rushed, half baked and a sham, uh, in part because it's essentially banning uh, the consultants to look into how government policies are affecting gas prices. So we asked Premier John Horgan about that. He was at an unrelated news conference this morning, but at the Q&A, he faced questions about this, and he essentially said, well, government policies are already available online and open to public scrutiny, and how do you explain a $0.40 cent per litre jump in prices over a single weekend? He said that's not due to taxes, that's due to some external factors. And so that was his response to that. But he's certainly facing a lot of heat for excluding these consultants from looking into the effects of government policy on gas prices in Metro Vancouver.
1: OK, is there any indication, to, that when these oil company officials get on the witness stand, they're going to face any kind of significant kind of cross-examination or grilling uh, about the so-called... Mm-hmm gouging i mean horgan has been saying they've been gouging us at the gas pump which is pretty serious allegation when you think about it are these guys going to get grilled on that this afternoon
7: absolutely and they're under oath so they have testified that anything they say is nothing but the full truth so the types of questions that they'll face will certainly be difficult uh, to answer and some of them leading up to today's hearing some of the biggest players in BC's retail gas sector, Husky, Shell, Imperial, have refused to even answer. That includes financial data that they've requested when it comes to their profit margins. These companies calling this information commercially sensitive and too risky to provide unless there's some sort of promise that it won't be released to the public. So the BCUC had to go and essentially refine, no pun intended, its terms of reference and say, okay, we promise there will be confidentiality here. We need this information. So it will be very interesting to see if some of those companies that to date have refused to provide details on their profit margins publicly will do so at least behind closed doors.
1: Okay, I find it interesting that you're you're not allowed to turn your TV camera on in there because I was Mm. speculating this morning, like, wouldn't it be amazing... If you got one of these oil executives on the witness stand and they were presented with some really damning evidence of collusion or price fixing or something like that, which I don't think is going to happen. But imagine if it did, if something like that did happen. After all, it's the premier of the province who's been accusing these companies of gouging us. So wouldn't it be amazing if that mm-hmm. happened mm-hmm. in this inquiry? You'd probably get like a million hits on YouTube with something like that. But that's not going to happen if you're not allowed to turn your camera on. What's up with that?
7: Absolutely. It's quite restrictive. And to tell you the truth, I haven't covered enough BCUC public inquiries to know if this is standard practice, but it certainly rubbed many of us journalists the wrong way, especially when their website got overwhelmed and their public audio live stream actually crashed for a short period of time, which meant that aside from us few journalists in the room, no one else could hear what was happening until they were able to fix that problem. Mind you, they did pause the panel and everything that was happening until they resolved the issues, but it's certainly raising some eyebrows that they're not allowing any sort of audio or video recording from inside that room.
1: Okay, Nitu, I know you're busy down there. I'll let you get back to work. Thanks a lot for doing this.
7: No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, as Nitu Garcha, global news reporter and anchor, she is covering that public inquiry on sky-high gas prices underway right now. Have you heard about Face App? Uh, this is the viral app, super popular right now, that allows you to uh, enhance a photo on your on your uh, cell phone into a wrinkle-enhanced version of yourself. It basically ages you. As if you want to see what you look like when you're going to get old, you use the Face app. And this is really popular. If you go online right now on social media, you'll see a flood of photos of celebrities, people like Drake, uh lebron james gordon ramsey's one of the best ones i think is a picture of gordon Ramsay looking all wrinkled I mean, it's scary accurate kind of <laughs> looks realistic some of these photos the jonas brothers a whole bunch of people using this app they have all pictured uh posted pictures of themselves with wrinkly skin and glasses and graying receding hairlines it's it's very very popular uh certainly on the apple app store right now people are just going crazy for this face app but there are privacy concerns with this particular app. And here to tell us about that right now is our own Claire Allen. Hey, Claire.
8: Hey, Mike. Yeah, so you're right. This is a really popular app. And everywhere I looked yesterday on social media, it's pictures of my friends that had suddenly aged like 60 yeah. years, celebrities <laughs> with graying hair. It seems like everybody was posting these pictures. And some of them were really funny, I must admit. Yeah. They were oh, really, yeah. They're were. funny to look at. Yeah. And a lot of people got caught up in downloading this app so much so that as of 11am this morning face app was the top trending free offering in apple's app store and according to reports face app has altered the photos for more than 80 million users since its 2017 release wow. but definitely a big push came within the past couple of days because of the feature the feature where you could see how you look when you get you know to the age of 75 or something like that right. so you know a lot of people are having a lot of fun and then they woke up this morning and saw that there might be some privacy concerns regarding this popular app. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about the threat to privacy that this app presents. So I spoke to Dominic Vogel. He is the founder and chief strategist of CyberSC. And he told me a little bit about the privacy issues.
3: One of the main problems, is not just with FaceApp, but with a lot of uh, apps is that they often ask for too many permissions in which you know they 'll try and uh, access uh, other data on your phone, your contact list, basically more information than they need the uh that you were required to be able to operate. And the other thing with face app is that uh, a lot of people thought that the picture that you take just stays on your phone when in fact that picture of yourself ends up going somewhere else uh, somewhere else on the internet is stored in some servers in the US or in Russia or who knows somewhere across the world uh, and now you've lost control of sort of your your face your your, your being and one of the I like, future problems with that is that as there's greater moves uh, movement towards authentication with facial uh, biometrics where we can gain uh, access to certain facilities or uh, certain areas by rec- uh, facial recognition there's the, there's a the potential that this could you know this could be used against us
8: so that's not very good. <laughs> that's a little, a little alarming. Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, didn't read the fine print when they were purchasing or downloading the app. So, but one of All the right. main concerns about FaceApp because there are a lot of apps that use our images that we can alter in somehow. But uh, the main concern with with FaceApp is that it's owned by Wireless Lab, which is a company based in Saint Petersburg, Russia. Oh, and, yes. And for uh-oh. many cybersecurity analysts, the Russia connection raises some red flags. But when I was speaking to Dominic, he said that. That users should be concerned about all apps, not just apps developed by Russian companies.
3: People should just should be equally concerned of U.S.-based companies or Canadian-based companies or wherever they are in the world, asking for too much inform- private information, regardless of where these um, these apps or the, you know, the companies behind these apps operate. That's a problem. Uh, you know, given the you know when you sort of peel away another sort of socio-economic slash uh, political landscape, uh, you know, in this case being Russia. Yes, one could make some potential uh, assumptions that you know, the, this app may be being used by uh, cyber criminals based in Russia to be able to perpetuate some other level of cybercrime or make more believable phishing scams or more believable social engineering scams. So there, there's some concern that we're providing fodder to um, cyber criminals in Russia to be able to uh, sort of make more believable phishing uh, elements.
8: Oh, dear. Very, mm. the, alarming, right? Like, that's very, that's very scary. I will admit, a bunch of my friends downloaded the app. I wanted to get in on the fun. I downloaded it, too. And I've told Dominic, I feel like a major idiot. But he said, <laughs> and he said, so I asked him, I was like, what should I do, Dominic? Should I delete this app? And right. he said that it really comes down to user awareness.
3: They just wanted to use that to, you know, to pull around and have some fun. Sure. That's great. As long as they're aware of what that risk is, we want to give people the ability to make that risk-reward discussion, uh, to make that decision as, as well. So um, I definitely don't want to be someone who says, delete it. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're you're screwed. That's definitely not the case. Uh, and we have no proof uh, to even say that the app developers behind this are even linked to cybercrime at all. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot, like I said, a lot of this is theoretical extensions of what could happen. But like I said, I think much of this needs to Um, revolve around discussion around how people need to be more aware of what data they put out into the sort of the broader app slash internet world.
8: So if you're feeling Mm. like, you know, kind of an internet dummy like myself today, I was wondering, like, what is the lesson I should be taking away from all of this? And here's what Dominic said.
3: I think one of some of the tangible things that people can take away from this are, one, when you install an app on your phone or tablet, it'll pop up um, in which it'll ask for certain permissions. That's not a huge list. You can at least see if it, what it's asking for. You know, if it's asking for access to, uh, like I said, your contact list, your email uh, folder, a whole bunch of stuff, and all it is is a flashlight app, that that's, that should be setting off uh, alarm uh, alarm bells in your head. Um, so look to see what permissions it's requesting, and if you see sort of through their terms of use that it's a huge complex legal document, um, yeah, again, you may want to to, to pause and think about that. There's some uh, sort of this movement towards apps in which they're trying to make their terms of use super simple and in layman terms. So where you can see that, that should give you extra um, confidence in which this is a company uh, or an app-centric company, which is trying to take privacy and security seriously.
8: So that's a good lesson, Mike. We should, you know, try to think about what people are accessing. But I wanted to know. I asked Dominic. You know, he's a cybersecurity analyst. So is his phone just filled with like really boring security apps and stuff like that, <laughs> or is he downloading fun things too? And he told me that he had actually downloaded this app. But this was a great tip in, in case you want to get on in the fun. You know, you don't want to just yeah. have like your address book on your phone and whatever some boring other apps like Wallet or whatever. He said people want to have fun on their phone. We live yeah. on our phone. You want to. Play play Candy Crush. You want to, you know, see what you're going to look like when you're 80. He said, what you should do is have, like, some sort of burner device. And since smartphones and tablets are very popular, especially tablets, you could have a tablet at home where you don't store any critical information. And if you want to have fun with these apps, use a burner device or a uh, garbage phone, as he told me. And use that where you can explore these fun apps without the risk to your digital security. So I thought that was really mm. interesting. And uh, if I want to keep up with all these fun things, I guess I'm gonna have to go get a tablet.
1: Yeah, but how many other how many people are gonna go out there and get a like a separate phone or a separate device just to use these apps? I mean, you know, you mentioned that you've you've uh, put this you you downloaded FaceApp yourself, Claire?
8: Ugh, Mike, I can't even tell you how disappointed I was with myself this morning. <laughs>
1: Really? So are you gonna delete it now? Oh, or? I deleted
8: it right you away. You did. Okay. I was hanging my head in shame. Shame.
1: <laughs> well, I do. I don't have this app on my phone, but after all the hype about it, uh, I was thinking of doing it. Now my son has it on his phone because he took a, a picture of me the other day and and showed me what I would look like as a woman. Oh. Because that that app does the same app, right?
8: Yes, you're right. It, it does did, that too. The gender swapping thing. It does yeah. the
1: gender swap. Right. Exactly. And It's pretty funny. I mean, it's a good laugh, right? I mean, it's kind of fun, but I don't know. I mean, uh, one of the reasons that this, this app has become so popular is because of this aging feature that they've added to it. This has been a controversial app in the past. I remember a few years ago when it was first launched, you could actually change your race.
8: Yes, the company you know. did come under fire for that, and the CEO yeah. apologized and said it was racially insensitive, I mean which it is. Uh, <laughs> and they even came under under fire for the gender swapping feature because yeah. uh, a lot of people thought that was insensitive as well. So mm. I mean, yes, the app has come under a lot of you know it's come under a lot of scrutiny, but people they just want to know what they're going to look like in the future. It's a, right. it's a strong pull towards that app.
1: Okay. Some good tips there. Thank you, Claire. Thanks, Mike. That's Claire Allen with the latest on the face app controversy. I think there's some good advice there from Dominic Vogel, who's really good on this kind of stuff. More on our special space week programming now with the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon mission. We're talking all things space. Got one of the best guests around on that now, Chris Gaynor. He's a space exploration historian. He's the author of the book, The Bomb and America's Missile Age. He's writing a history of the NASA uh, hubble telescope uh, he's the president of the royal astronomical society of canada he is a busy man taking some time for us today hiya chris how are you doing i'm doing great chris thanks a lot for coming on let's talk about uh one of the big uh, big advancements in space especially for canadians and our and the way we go about our daily lives and that's the revolution in in satellites and satellite communications for canada and i see we recently launched uh some new satellites but canada has been putting satellites up there for a long time right
9: that's right. Our first satellite was Alouette in 1962. Uh, although it was launched by the U.S., uh, Alouette represented uh, Canada as kind of the third nation to go into space after after the U.S. and Russia. Um, wow. So Alouette was kind of a scientific satellite, but uh, in 1971, Canada became the first country to launch its own domestic Communication satellite, uh, the ANIC uh, satellite, and uh, there's still kind of newer generation ANIK satellites uh, in operation.
1: What has been the impact of those satellites? How did it change uh, the way Canadians go about their daily lives?
9: They're used for all sorts of communications, you know, telephones and television were the, the first ones, of course, but there, there's all sorts of other things. I was actually just uh, Preparing for this talk, I I, I, I looked up uh, a, a situation where a satellite went on the blink uh, in 1998, and it knocked out pager service all over the U.S. Wow! And uh, and and a lot of gas pumps didn't operate because they couldn't do credit checks on people. It's it it's just. Worked its way into so much of what we do. You know, when you pay with a a credit card, and they always check to see if if the if the card is kosher. A lot of that is done by satellite. There's just there's just all sorts of things, and and you know we often forget about it until a satellite goes on the blink, and then we get a bit of an education.
1: Yeah, probably people don't realize is how much we rely on them on a on a daily basis. How about uh, how about getting weather reports? I mean, a lot of people will check, oh, check the weather on my phone. That's got a satellite connection too, right?
9: That's right. We've had you know weather satellites up for uh, you know sixty years almost now, and they give us kind of a good overhead view of what the weather is. You know, not only overhead uh, where we live, but also way out in the oceans where there may not be monitored. So that's. That's kind of an important part of the whole thing. Another really important thing is GPS. Right. Um, You know, could you imagine if we lost the GPS satellites, there'd be absolute chaos because we've (laughs) become very used to, uh, you know, having those things in the phone and helping us find, you know, that that confusing house out in the suburbs and things like that. Uh, But it's, it's just become such an important part of of our of our lives, and that only really started to come in in the nineteen nineties. Uh, GPS.
1: Yeah, no, we really do rely on those GPS apps on our phones these days, for sure. And that's another one that if boy, if that went down, it would it would certainly cause cause a lot of problems. We got some new uh, new Canadian satellites going up recently too.
9: Okay, well, uh, a week or two ago, uh, the uh, radar sat. Constellation satellites were were launched, right, and um, these uh, th- these are the latest in a series of satellites that Canada has launched. I think starting uh, back in in the 1990s. And what they do is uh, is instead of using light to look at the Earth, they they bounce r- radar off off the uh, surface of the Earth. Uh, which means they can be used any time of the day uh they aren 't dependent on having light and and they aren 't bothered by clouds and um, they have all sorts of uses they can you know follow changes in land use and things like that uh they can monitor the oceans for uh for pollution because like when you dump oil in the ocean, the slick shows up differently on the the radar signature it uh it can follow events like floods and and uh icebergs and 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 also uh also even shipping and things like that they have all all sorts of uses and uh and canada has become a, a leader in that it's called uh, synthetic aperture radar uh which which produces the uh, uh kind of these images done by radar and today i just saw the first image that came down from uh radar set constellation it showed it was just kind of a test shot of uh one of the islands up in the arctic
1: amazing technology for sure chris we're looking back 50 years at the apollo 11 uh moon mission are you old enough to remember the uh the landing there back in
9: 1969 oh i i sure was that if 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 uh if I was sitting with you, you wouldn't even need to ask me the question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what do you you remember from that day?
9: Well, I had first gotten into space, uh, back in the Mercury days with, uh, John Glenn and all that. And I, at that point, I've been waiting for years for Apollo 11. So I was all excited and, 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 and ready to go. So, uh, so yes, I just I just spent like the whole day in front of the TV, you know, watching the landing, which took place in the afternoon, yeah. and then a few hours later when uh, uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, did their uh, their two-hour moonwalk, and of course that was long before Michael Jackson came along. <laughs>
1: i remember it too i was just a kid but i vividly remember uh being huddled in front of the tv set with the whole family and that was an exciting moment as we've been hearing on uh, global news this week as well chris we've been talking about the canadian connection to the apollo 11 uh, mission and i think maybe not a lot of canadians might know that there was a a canadian component to this
9: yes there's a there's a couple of things worth talking about one of them is that the uh uh, the legs for the lunar modules were made in uh, at a place called Eru uh, Machine Parts, now Eru DevTech, which is in the suburbs of Montreal. And all those legs are still standing on the moon because the, the descent stages were left behind when the astronauts, you know, returned to the mothership. So there's a, there's a little bit of Canada on the moon. The other part is... is has to do with a controversial story uh, in ni- ten years before the moon landing, our federal government canceled the Avro Arrow uh, jet program. Oh yes, and uh, uh, people are still arguing about that. But uh, there are all these engineers without a job, and NASA came up to Canada and and, and hired about thirty-two of them. Uh, now some of them were Canadian, some of them had come from from Britain. Uh, but, uh, they all, uh, went down to, uh, to NASA, eventually to Houston, and worked on the, uh, uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. A couple of them are worth mention. One is a guy named Jim Chamberlain, who is actually one of the top people at, uh, uh, on the aero program. He basically designed the Gemini spacecraft, which flew in the mid-60s and kind of got, the astronauts uh, and the controllers ready for Apollo, uh, and did you know there was the, the uh, you, you know you can see Gemini for example in the, that movie about Neil Armstrong because yeah. he flew in Gemini first, and he also kind of helped NASA decide how they were going to go to the moon in, involving the the lunar module and the mothership. The other person worth mentioning is Owen Maynard who became one of the top people in the Apollo program and and helped design the missions that led to the moon landing. And also, he was the head of systems engineering, as they called it, and it kind of meant that he was in charge of making sure that everything worked together. You know, one spacecraft, the lunar module was built by one contractor, and the other part was command service module was built by somebody else, and it had to interact with a rocket and the tracking systems and the recovery and the launch pad and everything else. That was his job. So, uh, um, and other Canadians helped out with the tracking and the computers and and when the Apollo 11 astronauts came back to Earth, the first person they met was a fellow from uh, Vancouver Island. Wow. Um, It was a guy named Dr. Bill Carpenshi and he Hmm. was He was a a doctor who was trained to jump out of the helicopter, and he was locked in the quarantine with the uh, Apollo 11 astronauts. You might remember there was a slight chance and and a concern that there might be germs on the moon, so they were quarantined for a couple of weeks. Those are some of the Canadian aspects to Apollo 11.
1: It's nice to know that there was a Canadian element to the Apollo 11 mission, and it's a good reminder for Canadians that we can be proud as we look back on the 50th anniversary this week. Hey, Chris, thanks a lot for coming on today. My pleasure. I appreciate it a lot. That is Chris Gaynor. He is the president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada.